We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Welcome back, listeners. Um, excited to get into this second chapter of Hebrews with you guys. Um, I want you to understand, as we talked about in the first chapter, there are things that are oftentimes passed down as tradition. I don't know where you're at. I know we've got people from all over the world who listens to these. Um, and so I, I want to welcome you for joining. I want to thank you for joining. And uh, But I don't know what your upbringing is. I don't know where you're currently at in your understanding of the word. But what we talked about in chapter 1 in, in the relation to who wrote this book of Hebrews. And if you haven't listened to it, go back to it. It'll make sense in what I'm about to say. But I'm not going to recount it. Um, a lot of truth that we have today in the church is passed down and it's tradition and it's something that my dad believed it his dad believed it and his pastor believed it and this is just what we've been taught so we believe it because it's what we're comfortable with and it's what is traditional and we don't want to vary from that we don't want to get away from that because then we begin feeling shaky or unstable i want us to make sure that truth is what validates truth that the word of god is what we derive our idea of what is true from and chapter two we're going to get into that very concept and so hang with me through this one because there's going to be some things that are probably going to ruffle some feathers there's going to be some things that are probably going to put people on edge and there's going to be some people who are out there you know what i know truth sets me free and i and it gives me a foundation for my feet and i'm supposed to be immovable from the truth as the church as second timothy 2 15 says and so I, i'm going to receive this because I believe that this is what it's saying. Or maybe you find it's like, huh, that's interesting. I've never thought of that. I want to go study it out and be a Berean. And that, I don't want you to take something just because I say it. I want you to take something because it's what God says in his word. And if it's something that contradicts what you think, I want you to go study it. I'm never going to be the teacher that's going to come in here and just give you guys fluff. There is way too much fluff out there, as Paul tells Timothy, and much too, um, there's too many ear ticklers out there. They're going to scratch your ears because it's what you want to hear. I'm never going to be that. I don't believe Jesus was. I don't believe Paul was. I think they encouraged in truth. I don't believe they, believe they ever encouraged through flattery. Never. In fact, Romans 16, 17 through 18 tells us that we need to watch out for the people who flatter. And we need to avoid them. And so I'm never going to be that guy. I'm going to tell you the hard things. I'm going to teach the hard things. I'm going to draw hard lines. I'm going to make things black and white. I'm going to keep them absolute. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know everything. I know there's a lot of stuff that I still have yet to learn and even uh, apply to my life as I'm trying to still walk out this journey and, and be sanctified. But my aim is on Christ. My aim is on truth. And my aim is on the way that he's called me to live through his word. Which is why John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. So is your aim really Jesus? 
Do you really want to go by what he says in his word written through the mouth of the apostles? And do you really want to abide in his truth? Because if you want to do those things and find the life of God through him, then you'll find your way to God in him. And so in this one, we're going to get into chapter 2. And uh, yeah, we'll start out, therefore, so go back and listen to chapter 1 if you haven't, because the therefore is always there to let you know as the author or as the reader, what's it there for? Therefore, because the message of Christ is much more reliable than that of the angels, because Christ is much more supreme than that of the angels or the prophets. Therefore, we, now this is crucial, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Now, I want us to understand something very clearly right here. The author doesn't say you. The author isn't um, excluding himself from this warning. The author is including himself. Whoever this author is, here's what we can know. Whether it's Paul, which I don't believe it to be. Whether it's Apollos, which I do believe it to be. Whether it's Barnabas or Luke, which some scholars believe it to be. Whoever it is, they're spirit-led. And they're of Christ. Otherwise, this book would not be in canon. So the author includes himself and he says, look. Because the message of Christ is much more reliable, whether for the promises of God for the good or the promises of God in the bad. And that'll make sense in a second. He says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, this concept of drifting away, obviously, makes your mind wander to a boat. A boat that stops rowing, a boat that stops letting the wind guide its sails. Or maybe it just puts the sails up and it just begins to let the wind take it wherever it wants to. It's no longer grounded. It's no longer uh, has its foundation of being in control of the boat. Now it's like it's just letting things control it. And as Ephesians 4 talks about and James chapter 1 talk about, those are dangerous things. And this is somebody that, that he's saying, look, look, we've got to make sure that we are paying closer attention to the things that we hear when it pertains to truth. Lest we drift away from the foundation of truth. Namely, salvation. He says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. And listen to this. He's not talking about the good promises of God right here. He's talking about the punishment of God among his own people. Remember what he says in, in Hebrews chapter 10, we'll get to in 26 to 31. It says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, right? And right before it, it says the Lord will judge his people. This, this isn't referencing people of the world. Right now, he's referencing the church. Because he says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... Who did the angels come to? Who did the prophets go to? You could, you could put on one hand how many times the prophets went to unbelievers. To people of this world who are not Jews. More times than not, overwhelmingly more times than not, angels and prophets always went to the people of God. And if they did not do what they were supposed to, they received a just retribution for their transgressions. He says, if angels declared this and it happened... He says this, how shall we escape 
if we neglect, which is the Greek word amaleo, it means careless or to disregard such a great salvation. He says, if you stop rowing, if you start letting the wind govern your sails instead of the Holy Spirit, instead of the Word of God, you're neglecting the salvation that we have in Christ. And he says, and there will be a just retribution. Now, this is critical to understanding the gospel and the salvation that we have in God through Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. I'm just going to read it in chapter 10 of of Hebrews. Um, So flip with me if you're in your Bibles, if you're driving, just listen. Verse 26, for if we, there's the author saying it again, including himself. So it is there, it is uncontestable that he's talking about the church. As well as there's a couple points I want to make in just a second. This might be one of those things that ruffles your feathers or contends with the things that you've held from tradition for so long. But listen to the word of God of what he's stating here. Don't let it scare you off. Don't let it challenge you to a point where you become convicted and it's a little too uncomfortable for you. Listen to what he says. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is critical to understanding what it means that Christ was the propitiation for the sins committed previously. And I'll explain that in a second. He says, look, if you go on sinning after receiving a knowledge of the truth, as James 4.17 says, when he says, uh, the one who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin. If you know something is sin and you choose, including the body of Christ, the author of this, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a fear, uh, uh, sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence to the witnesses. How much worse punishment, listen carefully, do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Past tense. Not could be sanctified, might be sanctified, was, and has outraged the spirit of grace. Remember James 4, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. He says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 is saying is that if you go on sinning after receiving knowledge of the truth, you will give an account for it. Do not think that when you came into Christ, all your past, present, future sins were forgiven, wiped away, never to be given account for. Do not think that because that's not what the Word of God says. That's what many people teach, but that's not what the Word of God says in its fullness and entirety. I can isolate a few passages and make it seem like that's what it says, but that's not what it says. If you and I, after coming to Christ, choose to walk in deliberate sin, you will give an account. It will not be pretty. There will be a judgment. God will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall or to stumble into the hands of the living God. And this is what he's saying in chapter 2. Understand that the angels, their message proved reliable. And everyone among God's people who transgressed against who they were supposed to be and what they were supposed to do, they received a just consequence. And he says, and we also, if we choose to neglect or to disregard the salvation and choose to just be like, you know what, I got my get out of jail free car. I'm going to kind of live it up. I'm going to put one foot in the world, one foot in in heaven. And it'll be all right. God will forgive me. He already has forgiven me. I'll stand before him and I'll just, you know, stand before him and be complete. That's not how it works. In fact, James 1 argues against that to say that you're double-minded or two-spirited and you will receive nothing from God. 
And so he goes on in the seriousness of this, and he's talking about the supremacy of Christ. And as if 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about, you better not put Christ to the test. Because the things that happened of old to the Jews, they were examples um, to us to instruct us of that we should not put Christ to the test. Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I encourage you, go read it. Because it will make a lot of sense in connection with this one. Going on, he says, It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. This goes back into why I don't believe that Paul wrote um, the book of Hebrews. It's in Galatians chapter 1, and again, as I said, I think it's Ephesians or Philippians, where he talks about it, that Paul heard directly of the gospel from Jesus Christ himself. It was not attested to him by any man. And yet here, we see it was attested to us by those who heard. So those who heard directly from Jesus taught us. Paul would not be included in that. Apollos would be, though. Going on, he says, Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. It goes into 1 Corinthians 12 that Paul writes when it says that the Spirit apportions to each one as He sees fit. Not all are going to speak in tongues. I don't know what your um, take is on that one, but Paul very specifically says not all believers are going to speak in tongues. Not all are going to have the gifts of wisdom of understanding the depths of the Word of God. Is it? Are you capable to it, of it? Sure, absolutely. Through the Spirit of God you are. 1 Corinthians 2 makes that clear. But not all are going to receive that because not all can be trusted with it. In the same way, not all are going to be trusted with tongues. Same way, not all are going to be entrusted with the interpretation of tongues. The Spirit will apportion to each one as it builds up the body, as it brings glory to Jesus Christ, as He sees fit. He goes on, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, has been testified somewhere. Which, by the way, Paul never did that. Paul never wrote in verse 6, Somewhere it's written, somewhere it's testified to. I don't know where it's at. Remember Paul's training as a Pharisee? And he was so far advanced among people, uh, among his peers. There's no way that Paul would say, "Uh, somewhere it's written, I just can't really recount where it was. I mean, it was somewhere in that Old Testament. We do that. Paul wouldn't have. Whoever this is that's writing this has some good knowledge of the word according to the Septuagint. That's what they were schooled in because that's why they they, they, uh, quoted it so often in the book of Hebrews, even though they're writing to Jews. Whoever this was, was well-schooled in it, but they still had some refining to do. Hence why maybe Prisca and Aquila had to pull Apollos aside when he was teaching to them the things concerning the, um, the Old Testament. And they had to refine him a little bit in his understanding. Just throwing that out there. But whoever this is, it says, it's testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, what's interesting about this is that it says that Jesus was made lower than the angels, and it says just like us, because we also, as man, are made lower than the angels. So Jesus, as we're going to find out, was made like us in every respect. In every respect. I want you to think about that because we're going to talk about some things in just a second that might kind of, um, it, might, it might challenge that traditional way of thinking. And again, I'm not going to say that I've got everything figured out, but I do have questions about certain things in which I had been taught growing up myself. And again, I want the Word of God to derive 
truth in my life. And so in this one, he says, now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Let me just pause right there real quick because I want us to understand something. 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter to read along with Hebrews chapter 2. In this passage, he says, everything is subjected to Jesus Christ and nothing is outside of his control. However, 1 Corinthians 15 says there's one thing that is obviously not subjected to Jesus. And something in which Jesus himself is subjected to, and that is God. That you can just go read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 28-29. You go read it. Because that's exactly what it says. It says it's plain that when saying that all things are subjected to him, that it's plain that he who did the subjecting is not subjected to him. But Christ himself will be subject to God on that last day. That's what the scriptures say. Okay? That Jesus will be subjected to God on the last day. He says, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, because simply death has, no lo- has not been fully vanquished yet. There are things that still have to take place that have yet to be under his control because as even God says, Jesus himself doesn't even know the day or the hour. Right? There are still things that are happening that have to take place. But when it pertains to the authority in this life, everything is in his subjection. And as we are in him, therefore it's in our subjection. Or it's under our subjection. Right? This is what Ephesians 1 and 2 talk about when it says that everything has been placed under his feet and you have been placed in him. So that if you're in Christ, everything is now under your feet. The authority that he carried with in this life, you also carry. That means that when you engage in warfare and prayer, or when you engage in warfare against demonic activity that's going on, you have the authority of Christ in you. By faith, it's not your authority, it's his. But by faith, you have the same authority that he had when he lived in this life. Because you're in him. But there are things that are still outside of his subjection. Still things that have to take place before that. It says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So that's what he's talking about. While we were made lower than the angels, Jesus also was made lower than the angels in the prophecy from Psalm 8. That for a little while in his time on earth, he was made lower than the angels. And because he conquered as fully flesh and blood, having no advantage over us, and in every respect was made like us, as Philippians 2 says. You can go back and listen to my Philippians 2 podcast, and some of this might make a little bit more sense, because I'm not going to get into it fully now. He had no advantage over us. He was made like us in every respect. And because he conquered, he then ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he goes on and he says he's now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He became the access point of salvation for everyone who would choose to call on his name as Lord. That's what Romans 10 says. He says whoever would believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved. Let me just tell you, if you just think that Jesus is your Savior but he's not your Lord and you've never made that pledge, you've never confessed him as the Lord um, of your life, the, the kurios of your life, the Lord, the master, the one who has the reins of your life, if you've never done that, then you are not saved. I don't care what pastor you're listening to. I listen to the word of God. And the word of God says that if you confess him with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. 
In fact, Jude tells me that I need to contend against those who actually try to state that Jesus can be your Savior and not your Lord. People who pervert the grace of God and they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They want to make Him Savior but not Lord. They want to get a get-out-of-jail-free card by saying, Oh, He paid the debt. He gave Himself for my sins, so He's my Savior. But I don't have to do what He says. I'm actually supposed to contend against those people. If you have not pledged your life to Him as Lord, then you are not saved. I'm not talking about you don't have a struggle. I'm not talking about that the flesh you know, doesn't have that voice in your life that you struggle with and sometimes maybe you fall victim to. I'm talking about, have you ever come to a place where you have said, I believe in my heart that Jesus rose from the dead, that he died for my sins, that he became the access of my way to God, and I have given my life to him as Lord, that what he says in my life, I will do. If you've never done that, then you have not come to salvation in him. That might be the most important thing you get from any of this, because if you are not in him, you won't understand any of it anyways. And let me just tell you, how was it that Jesus was made perfect? Hebrews 5 tells us, I'm going to flip to it because I want you to see it word for word of what he says in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It says, in the days of his flesh, he prayed to God that God would spare him from death. And God told him no. He still died on that cross. But it was through that death of his flesh, it brought life to us. But how was Jesus made perfect? How did he learn obedience? It was through suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You are going to suffer. Suffering is just going to be a way of life for those who are in Christ because you have an enemy against you. As I oftentimes tell people, when you were an enemy of God, you were born as an enemy of God. That's just who you were. You, you still had an enemy who loved you. He wanted you to be part of his household. He sought after you. He came after you. He went to seek you. He offered his son as a replacement for you to say, I want you in my kingdom. But once you come into that kingdom, you now have an enemy who hates you and hates the one that you serve and he will come after you. You do not have an enemy any longer that loves you. You only have one that hates you and wants to see your demise, to steal, kill, and destroy from your life. And so let me just tell you, if you're not suffering, if you're having your best life now, and you're getting everything out there that you want, and you think that the blessing of God is upon you simply because you are um, you know, prospering and, and everything is going great in your life, let me just tell you, you're not following Jesus Christ because you're supposed to have a cross on your shoulder. And that cross is one of suffering. It's not one of blessing. This is what he says in First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Man, how backwards is that from today's way of thinking? We think that it's blessed when the world loves us. But John 15 says that if you were of the world, the world would love you. But I called you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Did you catch that? 
He goes on, he says, because the spirit of glory and of Christ rests upon you. He says, look guys, if you're going to suffer for the name of Christ, you're blessed. But if you're going to be loved by the world for the name of Christ, not so much. So I don't want to get too far away from this one. I want us to understand that Christ, he says that he, um, because of the suffering of death, he tasted death for everyone. He became the source of salvation to everyone who would call upon his name in truth. But it was through death. In the same way that you and that, that Christ experienced life from death and from suffering, you and I will also experience life from suffering when Christ is revealed. It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. There we go again. It's the same thing. How are you and I going to be perfected into the image of Jesus Christ? Through suffering. That, that's, that's just what Scripture is teaching. Not through prosperity. You will not be perfected in the image of Jesus Christ through prosperity. Not in the sense of how many people think of it today. You will be perfected into the image of Jesus Christ through suffering for Him. That's why Paul talks about filling up the afflictions of Christ. That's why Paul talks about by any means necessary that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. He says, I want to suffer for Christ in this life because it's what Christ did for me. And that is the only way to produce the life of God in you. That's why, oh man, I could go into even just the root word of what Christ means in Krio and go into Christos and go into Christianos. Those are the three Greek words that, that is the root word for Christ and then Christos is the word for Christ and Christianos is the word for Christian. And it's simply the Christ, it means to be pressed, to be smeared, to be rubbed against wood. That's literally what the, the word means. So if you want the life of God to come into your life, then you're going to have to have the imagery of Christ in your life who had to go to a cross and die on that cross to then find the resurrecting power and life of Christ in his life. It, it doesn't work any other way. This is why when you look at this, this word for founder, it, it's not that he just established the faith for you and I. We didn't have to do anything. This is the word. It's archegos is the Greek word. It means one that takes the lead, affording the example as the pioneer. He charted the course and he says, if you want to be sanctified into my image, if you want to come to the pathway of God, then you're going to have to take my footsteps and live as I lived in order to find God. This is why 1 John 2, 6 says that if anyone says that they abide in him, he must walk in the same way which he walked. Your footsteps need to imitate his footsteps. Brings a whole new meaning to Hebrews 12 when you understand that he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Those two words, archegos is one of them, the other word that's used there, both imply he set the bar of the faith at its highest level, and he says, now you go run with your eyes fixed on me and go imitate that kind of faith. Lay aside every weight and sin, which seems to cling so closely to our lives. Lay it aside, let go of it, cut the strings of that hot air balloon, and begin to soar as he did. When your eyes are fixed on him, 
the author and perfecter, the pioneer, the one who led by example and says, now I want you to go do the same. Why would he tell us that if we couldn't do it? Why would he say those things if we couldn't imitate him? Just something to think about. It says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. You could say that that is referencing Jesus and you'd probably be right. Jesus would be the source to sanctification. But in context of this passage, it seems to say more so that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, meaning Jesus sanctifies and those who are sanctified being us, we all have the same source of how we're going to be sanctified and that is suffering. It doesn't seem to make sense that for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Jesus is the source of his own source, of his own sanctification. That doesn't seem to make sense. I could make an argument that yes, absolutely, Jesus is the one who sanctifies by the Holy Spirit. But I think contextually this is referencing that Jesus had the same source of being sanctified in context to this suffering. That's what it means to be made perfect. It's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our life. So he who has the same Jesus having the same source of sanctification, of suffering, we also will. Our source to be sanctified will be suffering, not prosperity. Man, I hope you're getting this because this is pivotal to understanding the text and to understanding how you're going to be made like Jesus. Listen to what Romans 5 says. This is just a, such an encouraging Passage, if you would let it be an encouraging passage to you. But in Romans chapter 5, this is what he says. And it kind of is almost verbatim, the same thing that he's saying in Hebrews 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What did he just say in the beginning? For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. He says, through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. It's the same principle That suffering produces the sanctifying work of God in the life of the believer, just as it did in the life of Christ. You will not escape this concept. You will suffer for Christ. He goes on, he says, that that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, listen carefully, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Essentially, it's just stating that Jesus... Because of the, the truths of this, because of the, what suffering was going to produce, and that the only way for God to get what he wanted out of mankind and for mankind was to have flesh and blood conquer death. That's the only way. That was what he set from the beginning, that flesh and blood had to conquer death. But the problem was nobody could ever do it. Joshua couldn't give the people rest. Moses couldn't lead the people and redeem them entirely. Saul could not lead the people 
David couldn't even do it. Solomon, as wise as he was, as wise as what he was, paled in comparison. There was only one, and his name was Jesus. And this Jesus took on flesh and blood so that he could conquer death on our behalf and deliver those who through fear of death were in bondage. Let me just tell you, if you have a fear of death, you're putting yourself in bondage. If you're in Christ, you should not have a fear of death. I'm not saying that it's going to be difficult or that it won't be difficult. I'm not saying that there's not going to be a struggle sometimes. There's not going to be things that you're going to miss and there won't be tears. But I'm saying if if you have a fear of death, then you are in bondage. Because Christ came and he conquered death on your behalf so that you don't have to fear and you can actually be delivered from bondage of it. He says, for surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Go into Galatians 3.16. No, that's not the Jews. That's the church who is born through Jesus Christ. That's why he talks about you've got to be born of the Spirit. You can be born of the flesh all you want to and you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. You could be a Jew and have the lineage of, of the Jewish race and still not get in. That's what Luke 13 is all about towards the end. He says the Jews are going to be the outside looking in. They're going to see Gentiles reclining at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Jews are going to be on the outside. In fact, he even says your house, says the Jews, you're forsaken. Because until you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you will never see him ever again. This is talking about the offspring of Abraham being Christ. Go look again at Galatians 3.16. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, listen to this, in every respect. Let me just say that one again. Therefore, Jesus, the Son of God, born through Mary, the seed of God... Right? It was the seed of God planted in woman. He was born of flesh and blood while being of the bloodline of God. He was still part of the lineage of God. But he now has the lineage of man. And he was made like us in every respect, having no advantage over us. Again, go listen to my Philippians 2 podcast because he talks about it in which he says that equality with God was not something to be grasped. And because of that, because man could not grasp his equality with God, it says that he made himself nothing. That word for nothing means that he deprived himself of all force and deity. And he was made in every respect like us. But what am I saying? Let me just be point blank and say it. At the risk of a lot of people calling me a heretic and a lot of people doing exactly what John Calvin did to Servetus by putting him at the stake because he disagreed with this uh, traditional orthodox concept of the Trinity. I don't believe that while Jesus in the days of his flesh, I don't believe that he was 100% God as he was in the beginning. I believe that he stripped himself of that and was made like us in every respect. That he walked this earth just like us. That he had 100% of God in him. And he chose to put his flesh on the cross every day of his life that he never sinned. And thus gave us an example of what is possible through those who also are filled with the Spirit of God. Listen to what he goes on to say. He was made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I'll explain that in a second. But listen, for because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. Going into my point of what I just stated. Jesus 
was in the sense he was in the bloodline of deity because it was God's blood that was put into Mary. So he had the bloodline of deity. But I do not believe that he was God in flesh. I believe that he had 100% of God in him, that he was still a son of God. He was still part of the lineage of God. But I don't believe that he was God in the days of his flesh. And part of my reasoning on that is because it says right here that God cannot be tempted with evil in James chapter 1. But Jesus was. Now it's easy to just write that off and say, well, yeah, that was just in his flesh. I don't see scripture as teaching. And please correct me if I'm wrong. I've heard all the arguments. I grew up believing all the arguments. I looked at all the scriptures, you know, in John specifically, in which he talks about them. If you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and I and the Father are one. I've, I've heard all these, and that's great. Those are great verses. But I don't believe they prove that Jesus was God, because if I'm to be one with my spouse, that means that, does that mean that I am my spouse? I'm one with Jesus Christ. The word makes that clear that when I've come into faith in Jesus Christ as Lord of my life, I've become one with him in spirit. I've become one with the Holy Spirit. Does that mean that I am Jesus? Does that mean that I am the Holy Spirit? You see that those things don't match up when they're way to the fullness of the text. Just because Jesus says he was one with the Father does not mean that he was the Father. Especially when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, it says that in the end, Jesus himself is subject to the Father. If he is God, then how is God subject to himself? If God can't be tempted with evil, if it's impossible for God to be tempted with evil, how was Jesus tempted with evil? Who did Jesus pray to in the garden and have that person say no to him? All these things don't seem to line up to the common traditional belief that says that Jesus was God in the days of his flesh. It doesn't seem to be what Hebrews 2 is saying. And, and, and am I a heretic for questioning what's been traditionally passed down from age after age after age? Am I a heretic for that? Because I'm using the word of God to challenge a common belief of man? I want you to think about these things. I'm not saying I'm right on it. And I don't get into arguments with people about it. I might question things. I might get into conversations. But I don't argue about it because I, I don't know if any of us can fully grasp this concept. What I do know is that oftentimes in John 17, if Jesus was fully God, and Jesus' prayer to God was that we as the church would be one just as Jesus and the Father are one, that would seem to be implying that then I could be God if Jesus was God. If you're not, if you're not following my logic, that's okay. Just go read it. Whenever he says... He says in John seventeen twenty through 26, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world would believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, that they may become perfectly one. Do you understand that if I'm to use the rationale that Jesus was God simply because he says that I and the Father are one, then that means that if I'm supposed to be one with Jesus and the Father and with the church, just as Jesus is one with the Father, 
that that would mean that I would then be God. Instead, I think this oneness is a concept of unity, not of equality. Do you, do you understand what I mean by that? I think this concept of oneness that is there is one of unity and not of equality. Praise God, because I've never articulated that in my mind the way that it just came out right now. This oneness that Jesus had with the Father was one of unity, not of equality. Because Philippians 2 says that he actually stripped himself of that equality with God. That's literally what it says. Go look at the Greek. And so I'm raising into question. That makes me a heretic in your eyes. That makes me a heretic. I can't control how you're going to view that. What I am saying is I want to use the word of God to instruct me on what is true. And I just don't see that Jesus was God on earth in the days of his flesh. But that concept brings me hope. And here's why. is because if he was, then he had an advantage over me. So when God tells me I need to go live like Christ, I wouldn't be able to do it. Because he was God. And he had an advantage over me. He could do it. But I couldn't because I'm not God. But if Jesus was made like me in every respect, and he actually stripped himself of that equality with God that he had in the beginning, and... He rose above sin because of the spirit of God that was in him. And he lived his life in righteousness. And he lived his life fully pleasing to the Lord. And he lived his life in power and authority over the things of this earth and darkness. And he was made just like me. And I now have the same spirit that dwelt in him. And him having no advantage over me. But was made like me in every respect. That he himself suffered in this temptation. Then I know that as 2 Corinthians 10 talks about, that no, no temptation has overtaken me. That's not common to man. But I will be provided the way of escape through everything. So therefore, I have the ability to take every thought captive and to obedience to Jesus Christ. That I have this authority in the same way that he had it. That gives me hope. Because it gives me possibility. And by faith, I then take it and I say, look, I believe that your word is true. I believe that you are true. And I believe that because of those two things, you have given me all that I need for a life of God-like living. As 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1 both say, that his divine power has granted to me all things that pertain to life and godliness. He says, I've been given all things so that I can live this life of Christ. And because he lived it, on equal terms with me, having no advantage over me, but having the same spirit dwell in him that dwells in me, because of that I can too. That's hope for me. Let alone, what does he say in here, moving on from that one, that's going to be one that I encourage you guys, go study out. Um, I've heard the arguments, I grew up believing the arguments. But it, it was through my diligent pursuit of the word of asking some of these questions and letting truth define to me what is true. That I came to this understanding and this reality. And I'm not going to say that it was God who gave it to me. Because I'm going to hold the possibility that I could be wrong. But I do believe that God has led me to this point. And using truth to establish truth. I don't know. I don't see a way around it. Seems to be this is what truth is stating. Regardless of that. I want to get down to one more topic. 
real quick, of this concept of propitiation for the sins of the people. This word propitiation is, is a word that simply means an atonement or a way to reconcile or to appease. Okay, and so this concept is one that a lot of people use to say that Jesus became the propitiation or the replacement, the substitute for all my sins, past, present, future. And in a way that's right, but in a way, in the way that most people look at it today, it's wrong. Jesus became the propitiation for my sins in that he became the access for me to be forgiven. But as we learn in Hebrews 10, when the author includes himself in this, I could stand unforgiven before God, even as a Christian, because the author includes himself in this. This is why the author includes himself in 1 John 1, 9. If we, not if you, but if we confess our sins, present tense, not past tense, not if we confessed our sins, he was faithful and just, and he forgave us all of our sins. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means that if you confess your sins, you could be cleansed. Meaning, you could have some dirt on you. That means you could be unforgiven. So what does this mean? How does it play out? Well, I'm going to read to you what Romans 3.25 says in the same term that's used, propitiation, though as a variation of the Greek word, it still kind of has a very similar semblance to that word. The King James says it like this, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Now that's an interesting statement. As proganemei is the Greek word. It means to arise or have come before, to have happened before, of sins committed previously, those which have already transpired. So here's, here's what I'm getting out of this. This concept for propitiation of sins means that Jesus has not cleansed me from my past, present, future sins. It means that he wiped away and cleansed my past sins. Those which were committed previously to my salvation. It's all wiped away. It will not, be stand, it will not stand in account against me at any point from here on out. He wiped the slate clean. But moving forward, as 1 John 1, 9, as Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 talk about, as well as some other passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and Romans 14, 12. They seem to state that moving forward from that point, if I know something to be sin and I choose to still walk in it, that I will give an account for that sin. I could be forgiven of it, as 1 John 1, 9 says, but I will give an account If I do not repent of that sin, I will give an account. It does not strip me of my salvation because sinning does not strip me of that salvation because it is through faith in Jesus Christ. However, I will give an account for it. But Jesus has become my access to be forgiven. If I want to be forgiven, it's no longer the blood of bulls and goats that I go and do a sacrifice for. I simply plead the blood of Christ and repent of that sin and ask for his forgiveness. And he says, it's yours, my child. I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So what does this say when he says he became a merciful and faithful high priest? He can sympathize with us. He can now empathize with his people because he now understands what we go through on a daily basis as God could never do. Because God can't be tempted with sin. Right? Remember we talked about this. So therefore Jesus could be. And so now Jesus can empathize. He can sympathize with us. And because Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature and now they're perfectly one as they sit up in heaven and he's at the right hand of the Father, the Father can now empathize with the people of God to say, I know what you're going through now. 
Before he couldn't. He couldn't sympathize with us. What we're going to get into in chapter 4 about. Now Jesus serves as a faithful high priest for the people of God who can actually sympathize with our struggle of flesh and spirit. That's good news. But this concept of him being the propitiation for our sins, here's what I believe. I believe that Jesus atoned when we came into the salvation in him, that he atoned for all of our past sins. He wiped the slate clean. But moving forward, we can be accountable and give an account for those sins. We can be forgiven, but only through the blood of Christ. And if any of us choose who are in Christ to not repent, to not confess those sins, you will give an account before him one day. I don't know what that's going to look like, but 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that each of us will give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul includes himself by saying the word we. He even says in Romans 14.12, we must all stand before the judgment seat of God, each of us, um, to give an account. So you will give an account of the sins that you do in this lifetime. Of the ones that have not been repented of, the ones that have not been confessed, you will give an account before God, even if you're in Christ. And as such, I cannot say that all past, present, future sins have been forgiven at the point of your salvation. It seems to be stated in Romans 3.25 and in correlating these other passages that all of your past sins were forgiven. But moving forward, Christ is your access to be forgiven, but that doesn't mean that you are. There are steps that have to be done in order for you to find forgiveness because God will judge his people. And it is a fearful thing to stumble into the hands of the living God. So all this, I told you from the beginning that Hebrews is going to be a book that's going to challenge you. It's going to convict you. It's going to challenge your ways of thinking. It's going to challenge traditional ways of thinking that might not be derived from truth. And it's going to set on edge a lot of those things. And it's going to be up to you to study it. So I encourage you, get into the Word, study. If you have questions or comments or thoughts, um, I will take any of those things that are expressed from humility. If you're going to sit and call me insults and names, then I'm just going to consider myself blessed. I'm probably going to say, have a nice day. Um, But the reality is, I'd love to converse about these things. And in no way again am I saying that I I have figured it all out and I've got all the answers and I'm the answer guy that you need to come to. No, Christ has the answers in his word. My job is to simply deliver the mail that he's written. And if that means that I am considered a heretic among today's traditional Orthodox Christians that are out there today that oftentimes just simply believe things because it's what they've always thought or because it's what they've always been taught, then so be it. But I'm here to declare the truth of God's word. And that's what I'm doing. And if you want to continue on this journey with me um, in being refined in truth and refined in that furnace as he talks about in Isaiah, then I would, um, I would love your company as we go through this book. And so you guys be blessed as you study through these things we've talked about. And I hope to hear from you. Um, and I hope to continue to have your ear as we go through the rest of Hebrews. Because it's going to get even better and even more challenging and convicting um, as we get into these further chapters. All right? Y'all be blessed.